What do you love about being outside and active? I'm, I'm sure I've spent more time outdoors than in. That just feels like home. Enjoy what you can do because you never know what is around the corner. Just being outdoors in the fresh air, it just clears my mind. Fully immersed in nature is what brings me the most joy. Welcome back to a brand new season of the Outside and Active podcast, where this week my very special guest is Sir Chris Hoy. Sir Chris Hoy is one of Great Britain's most successful Olympic athletes, with six gold medals and one silver to his name. Chris won his first Olympic gold medal in Athens in 2004 in the Kilo, an event that was actually later dropped for Beijing in 2008. But Chris took this in his stride and actually switched his attention to three other track sprint events, the Kirin, Sprint and Team Sprint. And not only did he switch his attention to these events, he went on to win gold medal in all three of them, cementing his name in the Olympic history books. In 2008, he was voted the BBC Personality of the Year, and in 2009 was awarded with a knighthood in the New Year's Honours list. And in this episode of the Outside and Active podcast, we chat to Chris a lot about what psychologically has to go into being a successful athlete, and why this element of his preparation and training was actually so fundamental into making him the success that he was. If you're new around here, then please make sure to rate and follow the podcast and forward it on to someone who you think would enjoy it just as much as you. Before we jump into the episode, I just want to say that over on outsideandactive.com, if you click shop, we are doing a special end of summer sale. Head over there now and get yourself a fantastic bargain. Thank you to Draro for supporting this episode. We'll chat a little bit more about them later. But until then, let's get straight into this conversation with Sir Chris Hoy. Hello, welcome to the Outside and Active podcast, where today I'm extremely excited to be joined by Sir Chris Hoy. How are you doing this morning? I'm very well. I'm, uh, I'm a bit groggy. I've just, uh, <laughs> I got back late last night. Um, I was up in Edinburgh, so I had to drive up to Edinburgh and back again. So it was nine hours of driving. And, oh. um, but yeah, good way to start the day. Get on a podcast. Yeah, and, get uh, talking. Have a cup of coffee, so uh, yeah, all good. I'm joining you? you with that as well. We've got our coffee going uh, and we're ready to chat about all things outside and active. But just before that, uh, we're going to kick it off with something that I do on every episode and that is offering you a piece of advice that someone who's been on as a guest leaves and they don't know who they're leaving it for. So this piece of advice comes from ultra runner Priya Kapaldas and her advice is quite simply to smile through the pain. And I'm sure there's numerous times you've had to do this in competitions and stuff like that, but I'm interested of how you take that advice. Oh, that's, that's really good advice. And it's, it's actually ring, it strikes a chord with me because our psychologist, Steve Peters, used to talk about the importance of smiling in stressful situations. So he, not just on a daily basis for your own good, but he, he said, don't forget to smile when you turn up at the venue at, on race day. When you walk into the velodrome, have a massive smile on your face. He said, there's all the, the physiological benefits of smiling, the, the, the releasing of positive, um, happy hormones into your body. He said, but the, the main benefit is that your rivals will see you smiling and will think, why on earth is he so happy and confident? <laughs> and he said, you'll have a double benefit. You'll, you'll benefit yourself and you're going to psych out your opponents as well. Um, but yeah, on a kind of, he was half joking, but half serious about that, but also talking about the benefit of smiling. Um, just trying to remind yourself to enjoy what you're doing and, and remind yourself that actually you're, you're choosing to be here at this competition. It's not a burden. It can feel like a burden at times when you turn up at a major championship and, and you're you're just, I guess, it, it feels like it's life and death. And really it's keeping it in perspective and understanding that it's not and reminding yourself, trying to remind yourself mm. why you took cycling in the first place. You know, 
it was a hobby. It was a fun thing. You never thought you could take it to that point. You'd be competing in Olympic Games or a World Championship. So uh, you could so be there, smart. enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. so yeah, that's great advice. Smile through the pain. Um, I like it. Interesting, bringing up sports psychology. Was that important throughout your career? Is it something that maybe became more important as your career developed? Yeah, it definitely. It was quite late on, so I was probably 27 or 28 before I started working with Steve. And before then, um, well, there was nothing else on offer, so that was the reason why I hadn't worked with one. But equally, when he first turned up with the team, there was a definite stigma attached to seeing a mm. psychologist, You know, which is ridiculous. 20 years ago, it's not that long ago, but it's, it was a different lifetime in terms of um, attitude towards mental health and towards even just the psychological preparation for sport. So it took a couple of the big name writers to go and meet him and chat to him and then come back and go, wow, that was really helpful and really quite quite interesting. And, and then you suddenly go, oh, right, well, maybe I'll have a chat too. And then before you know it, everybody's there. The mechanics, the, the coaches, the, <laughs> Everyone's you know, in. the receptionist, everybody's knocking on his door and wanting to chat to him. So, I mean, Steve's an amazing guy, but um, I think any psychological support can help you. It's... And it's not just, you know, I think people assume you're going in there talking about very specific, um, sports-specific things. And yes, you do. You have strategies for coping with specific situations and things that might be holding you back. But it's it's often just getting perspective and getting your, your life balances right and making sure that you're happy in yourself. Um, going back to smiling, you know, it's, it's important. And if you're, you do tend to find that if everything in your life or if you're, your home life, if your relationships, if you know, if everything's going well, then it reflects mm. on your bike, your your training, and your performance, and and kind of vice versa. It's it's all linked. Um, and Steve, yeah, Steve was was a, a massive part of my sporting performance. Yeah, I found it interesting. I was listening to an interview uh, with Stuart Broad the other day, who's just retired from cricket, who said, "I was offered it later in my career, and it's." I felt like I didn't need it because I know there was nothing wrong. I was I was doing fine, but actually, when he did eventually go, okay, I will go and speak to someone and and talk about anything. It actually found that it helped him, even though he didn't necessarily think there was anything he could improve on going into it. When he came out of it, it was a massive benefit. Yeah, I think that the notion is that it's a sign of weakness. It's a sign that you, if you're going to see a psychologist, it's like you're admitting that there's a chink in your armor and you're not mentally strong enough to cope with pressure situations or it's like no I, I can deal with it I'm fine and it's and that's you know the similar story there with Stuart Broad it's I think it's understanding that well if you can find an improvement or any way of coping with a situation better then why would you not take that advice or even just go and chat and see if there is something and, and there might not be but for me it was in the end it was it was really useful particularly leading up to London in 2012 and dealing with the additional perceived pressures of, of being at home games and the expectation. Um, but Steve, yeah, he just helped change my outlook in a lot of things, which you can then apply to the rest of your life. But um, I think a lot of people are just a bit, either a bit nervous or a bit unsure. And they think, no, I don't need that. Or I don't want mm. to sort of, you know, open that box. I just want to, you know, I'm fine as I am. Um, but I think, you know, like anything else, the ability to deal with pressure, the ability to focus under pressure it's a skill. So some people tend to be better at it than others inherently, but that doesn't mean that somebody who stresses or who worries or who, you know, has had problems in the past with coping with pressure, that they can't improve because they can. There's there's basic things that you can 
you can do and you can practice um, to improve for those situations. The, the hard thing is that we don't have, or most of us don't have, a daily life where you have these really big moments yeah. happening all the time. So you sit down and you chat about how you're going to deal with, how you're going to choose to react to a certain situation, and you talk through it when you're sitting calmly like we are now, you know, a cup of coffee in hand, you know, hypothetical situations. And it's all, yeah, yeah, that makes complete sense. And then it comes to a moment where you really are stressed, and it's like you're, you know, Steve used to talk about the chimp, the, the emotional part of your brain, um, you know, the chimp would get out of the cage and we'd start kind of getting stressed. Or, And and it's that's the hard part. That's the bit when you recognise, is reminding yourself, this this is the time I need to apply all these learnings and all these things that we've discussed. Um, and that's it's difficult to sort of step back and go, yeah, I can see I'm behaving in a way which isn't helpful here. Let's, you know, use the things we talked about and recognise that. And it's it, it takes time like anything else. You don't go into a gym and pick up a dumbbell and lift it once and get strong straight away. And the same with psychologists. You don't go and see them once and go, oh, well, that's that fixed. You know, you have to you have to practice it, and there are techniques you have to use on a daily basis. So it, it does take time, but it's, it's worth the effort. Just going to jump in this conversation with Sir Chris to chat a little bit about our friends at Dry Rope, who have been supporting the Outside and Active podcast for a very, very long time. Get changed and stay warm with the Dry Rope Advanced, the world's warmest and most versatile change rope. Designed to let you get changed anywhere, the weatherproof outer protects you from the elements while the super warm lining helps you dry quickly. Perfect for all outdoor activities from elite sporting events to family camping adventures. And even better, it's made with 100% recycled fabrics. To check out the full range of Dry Rope products, visit dryrobe.com. Well, let, let me step back out and ask you a question that I ask to everyone that comes on and it's purposefully vague because I like to see where people go with it. But what do you love about being outside and active? What do I love about it? Well, it, I guess it's changed over the years. Um, now, for me, it's about, I, I think, again, going back to the psychology stuff, it's about gaining perspective and seeing how small you are and how insignificant any of the things that are stressing you out are. You, when, when you're in, I think the pandemic really magnified it. When you're mm. stuck in one place, you're in a small, confined area, and it, you can, it, it just magnifies issues that you have, any problems or any stresses or anything at all, anything that's annoying you, it can just, it can really start to, to sort of marinate those problems. So if you, once you get out and you get some space and you go out for a ride on your bike and you see how, you know, you're riding beautiful countryside but with a bit of space some big hills you get a, a high point you look down and you see how insignificant you are and you kind of go ah this is quite a nice feeling to realize actually it, nothing's worth getting that stressed about you get the physical benefit of the exercise you get the mental benefit of being outdoors and time to think and time to reflect um but i just there's there's nothing quite like that feeling of on a, you know, that's a little moment. You usually get it, hopefully get it at least once in a ride of just thinking, I'm lucky to be here. I can't, you know, I'm, I'm, I want to, I want to savor this moment because it's, you know, usually we're all so busy and we're in such a rush to get stuff done and squeezed into a day. It's that moment where you kind of go, yeah, this is, this is lovely. And uh, I'm glad I'm here doing this. I'm glad I chose to do this. How has your relationship with uh, fitness and exercise changed, especially in the sort of the last 10 years since you've retired? It's changed a lot, really. It's 
it used to be all about numbers. It used to be all about data. It used to all be about, you know, a session was just another step towards an end goal. And it was all about the data. So um, you tried, I, I still enjoyed what I, I loved what I was, you know, being a cyclist, being a track cyclist, I absolutely loved it. And it was my passion. And that's why I managed to do it until I was 36. You know, I, I kept going because of the, my joy of riding my bike, not just because I like winning races. Um, you know, you get a lot of people that they can win once or they can win a, you know, a couple of years in a row. But to maintain that, you have to genuinely love doing what you're doing. So I did, I did love my, my cycling. But I think I've appreciated it more since I've retired because when you don't have to focus on the numbers, you don't have to stress about whether it was a good or a bad session and what the next session is. You just appreciate it for what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you miss it when you can't squeeze it in. So there's there's lots of times where you don't have the time to go out and do a ride for a couple of hours. But things like Zwift, um, it's not the great outdoors, obviously, but it's I guess in a way it's your mind, it's a trick in your mind to think you are outdoors. That's why I think it's successful. You know, it's a, a platform that allows people to feel as if they are almost getting that you know virtual world of getting outside when they're stuck in their garage or wherever um so i think just being active every day trying to have at least half an hour of activity physical activity every day um makes makes a difference and then you can maintain a certain level of fitness so that when you do have the chance to go out and do a, a full day and, and or a charity ride or you know a, a big thing that's that's going to take a fair bit of physical effort you're you're physically ready for it and you're not sort of <laughs> struggling to get up those hills because because people love to to you know they, they always still want to try and beat you up the hill or, oh, of course. You know, beat you up the hill so they can tell their pals but um <laughs> i just I, I i love it i, I still and, and even more now that my kids are old enough to cycle so they're my kids are five and eight and there's nothing i enjoy more than just getting out of the bike with them i went down to a local there's like a really cool place just on the outsides and outskirts of manchester and it's it's like a, it's got bmx pump track it's got little mountain bike trails. There is a flat area that's all marked out with kind of road markings for kids to ride their bikes to learn, you know, the, the kind of, the, I guess, the, yeah, the rules of the road yeah. and, you know, giveaway signs and roundabouts and all that sort of stuff. It's amazing. It's, and it's huge and it's free and you just, it's open 24-7. And it's, it's like a mecca for kids on their bikes and for adults too, I suppose. So I took them down there last week for the first time and, yeah, we've been going back almost every day. So I love riding my bike now for all kinds of reasons, but it's, yeah, it's very different to the old days where it was just this relentless, you know, the training was brutal and you every day it was about the numbers and you'd reflect after every session whether it was good or a bad session. And your day could be, you know, make or break based on a hundredth of a second. So you go home and you have your dinner and sitting there feeling a bit, bit glum because you're flying 100 metre time was... A hundred hundredth of a second slower than you hoped it would be. <laughs> crazy when you think about it like that. Yeah. It, but yeah. like you said, when people are challenging you, challenging you up those hills, do you still retain that slight competitive yeah. edge at all? I'd like to say that I'm I've matured and I'm, I'm able to just go. <laughs> no, no, on you go, mate. Well done, you know. But no, yeah, I'm still there's still that fire that it's it's kind of it's not as bright as it used to be, but there's still that competitive instinct, which when it comes out, it can be a bit embarrassing. Um, but I try, I try to rein it in and try to, to kind of understand there's, there's a time and a place. But um, yeah, every now and again, I do get a bit competitive. And that's, I do a bit of motorsport um, as a hobby and I race cars. So that, that, I have that little kind of competitive outlet. That's quite helpful for, uh, 
for getting rid of that those embarrassing competitive moments. Yeah, well, you, you took part in the Le Mans 24 in it was in 2016. That and as like you said, as a fan of motorsport, that must have been an incredible experience. Oh, it was incredible. It really was. It was my dream to get to Le Mans, and that was, um, you know, as an amateur driver, that is kind of the, the, the pinnacle of what you can achieve. So to be racing alongside, you know, former Formula One drivers and some of your absolute motorsport heroes, and to be doing it on such a iconic circuit with so many amazing stories, so many historic moments have taken place there over the years. It was it was quite bizarre. Um, but yeah, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Drawing on uh, what you said a bit earlier about being able to enjoy the feeling of cycling more, I suppose that when you're going to events now, you've just come back from um, the, the Cycling World Champs, you're you're approaching events in a different way. You're there to watch and spectate and, and sometimes be a pundit on as well. How does your relationship with cycling and these events change? Do you kind of go back and go, oh, I can appreciate it for what it is now? Or is it kind of like, oh, you, you miss you miss certain elements of it? Um, I still, you still miss those moments. I, I, I don't know if you call it missing. I, I think it, it allows you this self-indulgent opportunity just to reflect on some really cool parts of your career. So when you see someone like Emma Finucane winning her world title, age 20, in front of a home crowd, and that the, the shock, and you know, and her, she goes up to the family and, and the tears, and you kind of, and you allow yourself that moment to go, ah, oh, I remember 2008 in Manchester, <laughs> my world title, first world title in, in, in the sprint, and how it felt, and, and, and you kind of, it, it just, it's lovely to be there, because you know, you know, time, time moves on, times get faster, Equipment improves, you know, it's it's relentless improvement in sport. Um, but what doesn't change is, is are the emotions and the feelings and the and the pressures as well. And this, you know, the same head-to-head battles that nothing changes there. So you know what they're going through, good and bad, and you can you can reflect and look back on your own career. Um, but in, in terms of being a fan, it's yeah, you see things differently, and, and also just appreciating as an athlete you're so self-centered and you're so focused on what you're doing and your own needs mm. and your own your own schedule that the world kind of happens around you you don't really you're not looking out you're looking in the whole time and when you're a pundit or when you're on the other side of the fence you, you can appreciate how much work goes into putting on an event like the cycling world championships where you've got all these different disciplines together absolutely mammoth task this huge logistical challenge and I think they did an absolutely amazing job it was as a fan and as a, a sort of pundit, I had a brilliant time. I thought it was an amazing show they put on. Just, uh, yeah, I don't know quite how they managed to do it, but um, <laughs> and Glasgow shut down the city centre for over a week and the public really didn't grumble that much. I used the taxi drivers as a good barometer of, of kind of how public opinion. Yeah. And then they were like, well, you know, yeah, it's, it's causing a bit of difficulty, but, but it's good to see and it's good for the city and it's good for Glasgow and, you know, and they're chatting about Katie Archibald, and they're chatting about Jack Carlin, and they're chatting about you know all kinds of people. And you think this is this is really good. And and there were more people on bikes, just general folk riding around on bikes. Um, and just I, I really I, I love the way that Glasgow got behind it in a time when just at the back of a pandemic, you know everybody's purse strings are a bit tight, but they thought they've realised the importance of sport, the importance of investing in sport. And how these big moments, these big sporting moments, do make a difference. And there'll always be people to sort of go, ah, you know, it's cost too much, or it's this, or it's that. But the, the net benefit economically, um, from a health perspective, yeah. for the you know the, 
for the whole nation. I think it's so important that we keep having these events that, that, that do have a long-lasting effect. You know, London 2012, we're still talking about it. Well, I'm still, I'm still talking about it because I was part of it. But, um, yeah, I think it's it's great to see Scotland getting behind it and really you know, setting the bar high for the first ever combined cycling world champs. Well, it's events like that that will inspire people to even just get on a bike and cycle to and from work, um, you know, which, like you said, the benefits that come from that uh, in itself is is incredible and I mean just from the event GB did incredibly well in the cycling the paracycling uh, tables as well which was fantastic how do you look at the see a year or so away from Paris how do you look at the landscape of uh, cycling in, in in GB at the moment I think it's it's looking really rosy I think what's nice is the strength and depth across the board it's not just the track team say that are dominating or a couple of big names that are, you know, grabbing all the headlines. There's there's strength and depth across all the disciplines. You've got, you know, Tom Pitcock in the mountain biking. You've got Bethany Shriver in the BMX racing. You've got the, you know, on the track side, you've got a whole host of big names that are dominating there. You've got the para-athletes who are relentless in their medal-winning successes. Um, you know, pretty much every, you know, Grand Tours, um, you know, you, you switch on any Grand Tour and there's going to be a Brit up there fighting for the podium. It's still, I think, it's or to me, I think it's due to, um, so you work it back 10, 15, 20 years, and once you have role models, once you have people who are winning from your country, who you can see, well, they, they went to the same club that I went to or they, they trained at the same track or they, they raced the national championships here at Fort William, you know, and I've seen them in the flesh and they are normal people and, and that you have something to aspire to, then you can, you can emulate that. Um, but it's, it's when there's this big gap where there weren't so many, there weren't, well, we had talented riders, but they weren't getting the support. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, when I was starting racing, there was in sprint terms, the last really successful sprinter in Britain was Reg Harris, who was, I think world sprint champion back in the 1950s. So, you know, we didn't have anybody to sit and watch on a weekly basis at track league or um, we had guys in Scotland who were breaking through and making it onto the British team and they were my sort of heroes and my my kind of role models. But but when you got to international level, you assumed that you were going to get beaten because, well, we were kind of a, a Z-list yeah. nation in terms of sprinting. Um, so once you can break through that, once you can get riders or even one rider winning, then you, then someone else can think, well, I can do that. Domino effect. And it was it was really Jason Queeley who won the kilo in 2000 in Sydney. He was the one who got me to sort of open my eyes and think, "Wow, he's it's just just Jason." You know, no disrespect, but you know he's he's a normal guy. He's like you know he's like me. So I think, well, wow, if he can be an Olympic champion, maybe I could make it into the top ten, or maybe I could sort of just by training with him get kind of dragged along on his coattails and, and learn from him, and and it, it helped me massively. So once you have these riders winning and, and doing well it gets the momentum going as long as the funding is still there as long as the support for those riders they have the facilities if they have the coaching then i think it's it's not quite self-perpetuating you still have to put a huge amount of work in there but it's it, the, the future is definitely bright gives opportunity definitely definitely and i'm glad a little bit earlier you were, you were talking about different cycling disciplines because there will be people listening to this that of course will know cycling like the back of their hand but there will also be some of our regular listeners that may be thinking oh yeah i've watched cycling at the olympics and 
there's some of them where they're just not cycling around. They're going really slowly and they're going back and forth. What are the different cycling disciplines? I know there's so many, well, but the potential. How long have we got here? Because, you know, it's only, it's only a one-hour podcast, isn't it? Some of the more prominent ones that you were involved in. Yeah, so, well, the ones I was a sprinter and I used to take part in, um, yeah, the, the kilometre time trial, I guess, is the most simple one. One rider on the track against the clock, four laps, so a thousand meters as fast as you can. In the old days, there was no heats or qualifying, just one ride. So you would turn up on race day, a bit like Christmas morning. You don't really know what you're going to get until you unwrap the present, and uh, you know you just hope that you've done the, the training's done the job, and that you're going to be able to produce the goods. And it was done in reverse order of seeding, so the best riders would go at the end, so the times would get faster and faster and faster. So there was the mental stress as well. If you were the last to go sitting there watching your rivals post these amazing times, questioning if you could beat them and trying to focus on yourself. Um, and that was actually, as a really simple event, it was one of the best events and it's no longer an Olympic event, unfortunately, but I think it should be. Um, then you have the sprint, which is the, the kind of cat and mouse, two riders on the track, where it's just three laps of the track, first one across the line wins, dead simple. But because of aerodynamics and because of tactics, you don't necessarily want to be at the front, and hence you get this slow kind of build yeah. up, and and then with a bit of lap and half to go, that's when the real sprint begins. Um, you have the Kieran, which is the one with the at the start as a guy on a little motorized bike who's a pacer, and you all line up behind him, and the race begins with three laps to go. When when the pacer swings off, that's when you're allowed to start sprinting. And the reason for the pacer is it keeps everyone together in a group and he brings the pace up to about 55, 60 kilometres an hour and then you you race from that pace there. Um, and I do the team sprint as well, which is a three-person race, a three-person team event. And you start together, you, you, the first rider does one lap and then peels off, finishes their race. The rest of the, the two following riders continue on for the next lap. One of those riders then drops out and you've got one guy left in the track at the end to do the final lap. Um, and that's a, a kind of head-to-head race with yep. two teams. So that was the sprint side. And then there's about a million. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even as a, so as a commentator and a pundit, when you're on the TV with uh, the Madisons, the Madisons like a two, a two person event and you, it's like a relay where you, but instead of passing a baton, you just basically grab the person's hand and sling them into the race. <laughs> so one of these racing and one of these recovering at any one time, so there's bodies everywhere, all over the track. There's like about 20 teams or 25 teams, which means you've got 50 people up on the track, and it's chaotic. So, yeah, I won't even begin to try and explain about the rules and the endurance side of things. <laughs> no, I think you've done a great job. But once you get into it, like even as a, as a viewer at home, it can seem really complicated, but you've got guys like Simon Brotherton, Chris Boardman, who do the commentary for BBC, who are brilliant, and they will kind of explain it. And once you get into it, it's like anything. If, if there's nuanced things involved in a sport, once you get, to, once you understand those rules and those those little kind of um, quirks, and you become a, a sort of sofa expert, then you can really enjoy it. And oh, it's fantastic view. Yeah. Um, and you said that uh, see, 2004, the kilo was great for you, very successful for you, but then it was dropped afterwards, and you had to switch your attention to other things. Is that? mentally quite difficult as well as physically or obviously there's elements you can take yeah. forward physically it wasn't too much of a challenge or it was a challenge but it was i was a sprinter and i had the sprint physiology to adapt to different events but you're right mentally it was the hardest part i was nearly 30 
um, at the time, 29 going on 30, when I got the news that the event that I'd won my only or my first Olympic gold medal in was going to be dropped from the next Olympic Games. So I was a year into training for Beijing, got the call, and it was just an absolute body blow because mm. people are already sort of going, oh, you're 29 going on 30, this must be your last Games, you know. And, you know, the, your age is brought up all the time in terms of interviews and stuff. So you're questioning whether you can even make it at the best of times, and then your event's dropped, and you're thinking, well, there's no way I can change events now. It's, there's not enough time. You know, you, the, the kilo is a very controlled, one-dimensional event. It's all about your your, your physical um, strength, and you do have to have mental strength too, as I said before, about focusing yourself and blocking out distractions. But there's no tactics. There's no variability in what you're doing. Um, but the sprint and the Kieran are highly unpredictable events because tactics are a major part of it. So at, at that point, it was, do you retire? And, you know, I was Commonwealth champion, world champion, Olympic champion. I'd achieved way more than I ever imagined was possible. I could have walked away happy with what I had. But it was it was actually, it was just around at the time that they, they dropped the kilo from the Olympic program that they announced that London would be the, the host for 2012 and even though it was seven years away at the time I was like it was too big a carrot on the horizon I thought well, I've got to try I can't I can't quit now you know it's it's unlikely I'll make it to those games but I've got to give it a shot so that was that was enough of a, an incentive and, and I started training and, and the, the biggest benefit was um, well I guess the, the team realized that we had this a bit of a hole in the coaching um, a gap in the coaching for for a proper tactical coach, someone who really knew track sprinting like the back of their hand. And there was a guy called Jan van Eyden who was world champion in 2000 for Germany. And, you know, he self-confessed, he would say he wasn't the fastest guy out there. So he was, when he won the Worlds, he qualified 12th. Um, he was like two tenths off the winning time. But his tactics and his ability to read a race won him that title. He was incredible to watch. He could control a race. He could stall his opponent he could leave mm. you know he knew how to ride it and so we thought he's that he was the best tactician on the track so let's see if we can get him to come and explain what he's what he used to do on the track to to us and so he retired straight into coaching took it took to it like a duck to water and he really helped me to make that transition into into sprinting and human racing and he just broke it down and made it really simple and i had to sit at home and do hours of studying of videos. I used to come home from training, make my dinner, and instead of putting on Netflix, or I wasn't Netflix back then, but instead of putting on, uh, you know, a, a DVD or something, um, it was uh, it was just more homework. It was watching races, understanding what's happening, you know, and, and yeah, it was, I couldn't have imagined that it would have made the transition as smooth um, as he did, but yeah, he was a great coach and made it really simple. And not only did that then, you know, not only were you at the Games in 2012, you were the flag bearer, how does that added privilege, uh, I mean, even just going into a home Games as well, obviously we spoke at the beginning about smiling through the pain and pressure, were you able to enjoy it? Or did you feel that extra maybe little bit on your shoulders? Um, yeah, it was it was tough. So I've got three goals in Beijing, which was the, it's a good lesson from the whole Beijing and, and the, the kilo being dropped. And that transition was, I would never have done it of choice. I would never have chosen to step away from my event that I was world champion and Olympic champion in 
to see if I was better at two other additional individual events and, and the team sprint. But I was forced into it, and it was the worst case scenario, and it was awful. But having done all that, having dealt with that change, I realized that, you know, looking back, well, there was opportunity there. And, you know, with change comes opportunity. So, you know, I went to Beijing, won three gold medals. It was unbelievable. Like, I, I couldn't, I, you had to sort of stop at the end of it and reflect and think, my God, that was, how did that happen? <laughs> That's, you know, three years ago, you wouldn't have put five pounds on that happening. You know, it just, it was so unlikely. And then, as you say, you go into London and all of a sudden, because you are because you won three gold medals at the previous games, you are going to be one of the bigger names and one of the people that everyone's expecting. And as you say, I got to carry the flag and that added even more attention and, and expectation. And, and therefore, it was all about how do you cope with that? Mm. Because some people will fold under that and some people will, will deal with it. And I was lucky that I had Steve Peters. So going back to Steve, um, we spent so much time working on understanding or trying to deal with with the stress and the pressure and the fact I was going to be 36 in London so I was I was definitely getting towards the end of my physical shelf life and trying not to dwell on that but to understand right we have to you know everything has to be perfect you've got to really look after your body you've got to the recovery is absolutely vital your diet your rest your sleep but but psychologically too you can drain yourself if you're if you're stressing about stuff it can become exhausting so the biggest thing we dealt with was perspective and understanding that this is not a burden to be the flag bearer this is not a burden to have a home audience this is not a burden this is an opportunity and that word opportunity was just kind of repeated it was almost like a mantra and um, you know the, the pressure you can't you can't measure pressure it's not like a, in, in terms of um, competition it's all within you it's how you perceive it so what one person perceives to be a high pressure situation someone else goes this is brilliant yeah i can't wait for this this is exciting so it's trying to change your mindset so that you perceive that situation as wow i'm so lucky i can't wait to get out there what a, what an amazing thing to be part of instead of coming out going oh my god they all expect me to win because i won last time and yeah oh no i'm carrying the flag i've got even more attention now and oh so it was it was about changing that mindset and choosing to see it as an opportunity and realizing that what's gonna what's the worst thing that's gonna happen? You're not gonna win a bike race. The the world is not gonna stop revolving. It's not life and death. You still have four Olympic gold medals from the last two games. They can't take those away. You know, you've you've won them. You're not gonna lose them if you don't win this race. So go out there and enjoy it. You can only add to the experience. And if you if you go through it fearing it and having wor- you know worrying about it and stressing about it, at the end of it you look back and, and regret that you didn't embrace it more. So it was just a lot of work about perspective and trying to yeah understand um, what you have control over and what you don't have control over. So if you can just focus entirely on all the fuss around you, that's great, but you don't need to engage in all that. Yeah. What do I need to do? I need to make sure that in the five or six days that I'm in the village before a race that my recovery, my sleep, my diet, my training are all spot on, that my energy levels are high, that I'm not allowing myself to get emotionally drained by stuff, switch off social media. I didn't didn't engage with Twitter. Well, there was no Instagram back then, but yeah, Twitter was the thing. Um, because you could read a thousand messages that are all positive and you read one that's negative and that little seed of doubt goes into your head. So 
just switch it off. Why, why even bother engaging with it? Um, and I look back now, and I'm so glad that I was able to go into those games with that mindset because mm-hmm. I had an it was, don't get me wrong, it wasn't sort of like I was sort of waltzed in there and had a great time. It was stressful and you felt the pressure and you felt the adrenaline and the nerves, but in a good way. And and it all kind of melted away just as I got onto the bike on the start line. You, once you're in that, in your kind of, in your office, in, your, in that position of familiarity, when you sit in the bike and you're on the start line, you go, right, I'm ready for this now. And the stress is the bit that comes up to that point. But once you're on the bike, you switch on mentally, and that's that's what you're trained to do. And and the race for the Kieran was just, you know, it was again the Kieran is for those that aren't into track cycling, it's a sport that originated in Japan as a gambling sport. It's a very unpredictable sport. So there's six of you in the final, and anybody anybody in those in that final could legitimately be a winner. There's there's favourites, but really anyone mm-hmm. can win. So there's no guarantees. And um, yeah, it worked out, and I look back now with great fondness on that for that whole period of time. It was amazing. Yeah, you can you used it all as a step up rather than I think I said you know pressure coming down on your shoulders. It was all yeah, yeah. dragging you along. Exactly. And then yeah. the year later, uh, twenty thirteen, you retired. Is that like a natural? There was a was that a plan? Was that something that you knew maybe that was coming to the end? Yeah, I, I I knew that I was gonna I, I was kind of hanging on by my fingernails to get to London. Really, my body was picking up injuries all the time, and and I knew that nothing was quite going to match up to a home Olympics. So I think that I knew it was my last Olympics. The one I would have loved to have done the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow in 2014, but my body just wasn't really up for it. It was uh, you know I had a break after London, got back to training, and it was just back problems, knee problems, and I thought, you know what, I'd rather just not turn up there, patched together and, and held together with bits of tape. You know, I want to be, if I'm not going to be physically 100%, then there's no point in doing it. So, But I had a plan before. Um, I was always a big believer in having a plan and having knowing where you're going, having a goal, having a, you know, every day having a purpose. And, and once you have that, I think when you have a plan and you know where you're going, um, you don't have to worry about the long term. You just focus on today. What What is my mission today to help me take that step forward to the next step tomorrow, the day after, the day after? So, yeah, 2013, retired and had a plan for things that I wanted to do and wanted to achieve um, And because it, it can be a difficult time for athletes when they retire. No matter how long or short your career has been, it's, it's the end of an era and your, your identity as a sports person is over and you have to look to the future your schedule changes i imagine from mm. one week to the next it goes from regimented routine to your own sort of yeah. will um yeah so i yeah you, you would know every single day like i would be able to tell you three months from now on a what what day we are now tuesday tuesday morning would be um probably a road ride actually Tuesday morning for an hour and then it would be a three hour track session in the afternoon it would probably be speed on a Tuesday afternoon you know and it was so predictable and you got into this routine and you, you kind of latch onto it and it's and then you as you say you go into a life where there's the routine is well there is no routine because every week is different um, and therefore that's when my exercise that's when my cycling my gym whatever I'm doing becomes the constant. That's the one thing that's constant. I'll make sure I do something every day um, because every, you, know, you could be, you know, literally 
you could be flying somewhere for work, you could be going somewhere for it could be TV work, it could be work with your business, it could be you know, make bikes, it could be um, podcasts, it could be writing a book, it could be you know appearing on a show, whatever it is. It's just every week was different, um, and therefore I needed a constant. And my exercise, my cycling, and gym became became the ones that constant well yeah just picking up on a couple of those things just before we finish the um hoi bikes is something you're passionate about wanting to go and create your own um bike and also the podcast you, you kind of just brought up sporting misadventures as well where you speak to a whole host of people about their own sporting experiences um they're things that you you have the freedom to be able to choose that you what what you want to do yeah that's what's nice about it i think is that you have a blank canvas when you retire and it's a bit like the cycling what do you what do you have a passion for and i've gone from doing one thing to the nth degree to now doing a number of things and having a bit more balance in my life but the podcast as an example it's i just love i love comedy so i thought how how can i sort of manufacture a situation where i get to meet lots of my comedy heroes well we could do a podcast maybe <laughs> and just but yeah, basically, it's just comedians come on and talk about their sporting highs and lows, um, and it's it's brilliant. And it's people that you know I've been an admirer of for many years. And you email them, and you miraculously get an email back saying, "Yeah, sure. When when do you want to do it?" And you're like, "Brilliant!" So um, yeah, it's it's been good fun. That and the, the hoi bikes is something that we've been doing for ten years now, and we're about to hopefully take it in to another level soon. Can't really talk about it yet, but hopefully we'll have an announcement relatively soon. Um, and I think whatever I do, I try to do it properly. I try to do it authentically. I don't just put my name to stuff. I try to get into it and give it my all and enjoy it and get the most from it because, um, yeah, it's – well, I guess if – I don't know if we're going to have the advice the advice bit yet, but um, I could certainly – I can do it now, or well, do you want to? Let's do it. If we're if we're in the in the theme of it, let's go. Piece of advice. Yeah. Well, the piece of advice is, and it's something, and it's a really sort of. It might sound a bit bland, but I've I've kind of used it through my whole life, and it's something that my my grandma said to me. We used to, I used to live with my grandparents in Edinburgh, and I'm with my parents, the whole of us, the whole lot of us together. And my grandma used to say, "If a job's worth doing, it's worth doing properly. So if you're going to do something." You know, if, if you choose to do it, then do it with all your passion, all your effort, throw yourself at it. Don't do something half-heartedly. So either do it or don't do it, but don't, but, you know, give it your all. So, I mean, it was little things. I remember I was, we had this, the front doorstep in our house was brass. And I, to get my pocket money, I had to polish the brasses on a Sunday morning. And um, I was pretty young and I did a really half-arsed job. And my grandma came out and she's like, is that the best you can do? I was like, yeah, yeah, you know, can I have my 50p kind of thing? And and she said, you know, if a job's worth doing, it's worth doing properly. Come on, you'll feel, at the end of it, you'll feel, you'll look at those brasses and you'll think, oh, they're shining and they look great. And I was like, what are you talking about? And I, and I she made me redo them and I finished. And I did stand back and go, I'm proud of that. You know, that was worth doing. And it was just a little thing which then sort of the seed was planted about the importance of, Doing a job properly, give it your all, and you get you, not just about the end result, but the, the process of doing it. You enjoy the process of doing it more. You feel you take pride in your work. So yeah, have fun at what you do and give it your all. That's that's good advice. I look forward to passing that along. And just a final question: uh, You played rugby when you were younger. I'm, I'm assuming you're still a rugby fan. 
Uh, yeah. The Rugby World Cup is coming up very soon. What What are your thoughts yeah. and opinions? Well, obviously Scotland are going to win, aren't they? Um, <laughs> well, it won't be England. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess the England. The benefit England have is that no one's expecting them to do anything, um, and that's when a team's dangerous. Um, but it's whether they can, whether they believe they can do it or not, is another question, another matter. Um, but yeah, Scotland are in a, a pretty tough group, and it's you know it, it, they're up against it, but. I think it's wide open. I think that's when it's quite exciting when it's, you know, I remember back in the day when the World Cup started back, was it the 1990s? New Zealand. And it was just, it was, yeah, and New Zealand were just, it was it was so predictable. There were very few surprises. You, they always ran to form, you know, the teams were just so dominant that there was very few, very few matches that were ever in question. Um, but now it's, it's amazing. So, yeah, can't wait. Well, we look forward to that and I look forward to passing your advice along so, Chris, thank you very much for coming on and talking to me. Thank you. Great to chat. And that brings us to the end of the first episode in Season 11 of the Outside and Active podcast. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to Sir Chris Hoy for coming on to the podcast as a guest. I really hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I had having it. And like I said at the beginning of the podcast, if you think you know someone who would enjoy it just as much as you, then forward it over to them. Let's grow this Outside and Active community. And also don't forget, over on outsideandactive.com, on the shop, we are running a full end of summer sale on every single product. So make sure not to miss out on that. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Outside and Active podcast. I've been Dominic Brown, and until next time, enjoy the outdoors.